0: First Samuel, we're looking at uh, chapter 22 together. That's First Samuel 22. If you don't have a Bible, there is looking at... we. So last, well, oh, two weeks ago, I went through verse 6, or verse 5 of chapter 22. So we'll be looking at verse 6 all the way through the end of chapter 22. So a smaller portion of these Old Testament narratives that tend to be quite long. Um, since it's been a couple of weeks, let me give you a quick review on what we looked at last time. So basically chapter 21 you have you have David on the run. David is essentially a fugitive in Israel. He's he's being sought out by Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, trying to murder him. He's already tried multiple times. So David has f- uh, just a few friends in Israel, Jonathan being one of them. And we see him running to to really three different places in chapter 21. We see him first go to this place called Nob. Funny name, but it's where, the, it's where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's where the priests are. And we see him come to this, this priest named Ahimelech, the priest. And uh, he asks Ahimelech for some help. Ahimelech gives him bread. Ahimelech gives him a sword. The only sword that's available is uh, Goliath's sword. And David takes Goliath's sword, and he takes it down to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. And we're wondering, why in the world would, would David be leaving Israel to go to his sworn enemy, the city of the man whom he killed, champion the champion, Goliath, and think maybe he would be welcomed. Well, he wasn't. Uh, He was in danger, and he was almost killed, and he had to essentially act like he was an insane man. He had spit running down his beard, and he's like, that's the only way I can get out of here, is if I disguise myself as insane. Well, the Lord saves him. He does get out of Gath, and he heads to the caves with his family in Moab. And we're wondering, why is he going away from Israel? It's because things have gotten so bad in Israel. Saul is, is out to kill him. And he's running away. That his, his enemies are actually his friends now. So things are, are very bad. And we're going to see how bad they actually get in our chapter, in chapter 22. They get very bad as we see um, what, ha- what takes place. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, beginning in verse 6. This is God's word. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse... Give every one of you fields and vineyards, and will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Who stood by the servants of Saul? I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, this is a a difficult story. This is a difficult history of Israel that we read this morning. Would it sober us as we think about this cautionary tale of this now turned quite evil leader, Saul, who turned against his own people. Father, Teach us from this, but also show us your grace and your mercy. Show us how you promise goodness to us in the midst of evil. Bless us as we read and as I bring this word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a rough story, isn't it? It's not, just a rough, it's not difficult really to interpret. It's really difficult in content right? to read this story. It's bad news. It's tough. And you know, we live in a world in and in a day and age where we read a lot of bad news, a lot of hard stories, a lot of violence, a lot of evil we read about. And that's partly because, I don't think evil's increasing, maybe it is, but we just, we have more access to it, don't we? Clicking through headlines, we have access to thousands of stories every single day. We're bombarded with bad news and stories of evil. I don't know if you're like me, but if you ever, you know, on on a website website, um, looking at different news sites, and you see a headline, and the headline is enough for you. You don't even have to click on the headline to go into the story to read about the details. You don't want to. It's too much. And honestly, it's good for us to not be consumed with everything we read about. Just because we have access to all the stories in our world doesn't mean we need to indulge in in it. We're bombarded with bad news, and so the question becomes, how do we not despair in the darkness when we receive this bad news, when we hear the evil around us, when it's heavy around us? I was reading in Proverbs 29 this morning a verse that is very um, uh, poignant for this, this chapter. Proverbs 29 nine two says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the r- wicked rule... The people groan. The people groan. when we have wicked rulers. That's an awful state of affairs. But in that same proverb, in, in, in verse six, 29, chapter 29, verse 6 of Proverbs, there's some hope here. It says, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. So the question for us this morning is how do we rejoice? How do we sing? How do we praise God in the midst of evil when we see it around us? Well, in the darkness of evil, we can do three things. got it in your outline this morning, in your bulletin. We can praise God, number one, for his restraining grace. Number two, we can praise God for the mystery of his plan. And number three, we can praise God for the protection of the remnant. We'll look at each of those in turn. First, let's look at this idea that we can praise God For his restraining grace. What do I mean by restraining grace? Well, God gives you grace in two ways. He gives you grace that produces good things in your life. Desires that are good. Desires for righteousness. Desires to glorify God. But also in your Christian life, in your your journey as a Christian, he gives you restraining grace. He gives you uh, the power to restrain those bad inclinations. So look back into your own life. Think about your life as a believer and the things you no longer do that you used to do. The desires you no longer have that you used to have. The appetites. All those things, those habits that you don't have anymore. Not to say all those things are removed. We still struggle. We will continue to struggle until glory. But God produces in us restraining grace. But the opposite is happening with Saul, isn't it? God has departed from Saul. And so is his grace. Again and again, the story through 1 Samuel is that God is, is leaving, is departing Samuel. We actually first read about this in chapter 3, verse 1, before, before Saul is on the scene. And it's, it's, it's when the call of Samuel, remember when he's a young boy in the temple, or the tabernacle, and it says the word of God was rare in those days. The word of God was rare in those days. Remember, it's the time of the judges. It's the time of everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so in judgment, God takes himself away. There's no word. There's no frequent vision, it says. And then when we get into Saul's reign, early in Saul's reign, in chapter 13, he's told to do something very simple. After they kill this king, and after they wipe out... This, uh, this nation, the Ammonites, he's told to uh, kill, kill everything. right? This is, this is a form of, uh, of warfare that was essentially you put a ban on something in a religious sense to get rid of it out of the Holy Land. And he, he disobeyed. Saul didn't do what he was supposed to. And then in chapter 14, we see him asking God for advice or wisdom or Uh, His word on whether or not he should attack or not in a war. And what does it say? God gives him no answer. So God is is slowly but surely removing himself from Saul, removing his grace. And as we think about ourselves, um, left to ourselves, we become our true selves. And our true selves are not good. My true self is not good without God's grace. Your true self is not good. David Hall, a Presbyterian author, says, We know from Scripture and history that if anyone is left alone and unaccountable, then eventually even the best saints may may fail, may fall. And so we're called, our culture says, follow your heart, right? When I say don't follow your heart, you need a new heart. You need a new heart. I've been watching this documentary, World War II documentary, and learning a lot that I didn't know about World War II, and, um, and it follows what was happening in Germany and in Hitler. And um, you know, Hitler is a perfect example of someone whose isolation and, and unaccountability coincided with his being out of touch with reality. And it's, you start to see it in some really mishaps and, and just really not smart moves he makes strategically, one being the Battle of the Bulge, when he tries to uh, go go west and take out the Allied forces, when they really didn't have the resources to. But, well, but what you see behind the scenes in Germany at that time is he's becoming more and more isolated, and nobody being able to tell him what to do because they're they're fearing him. And he's actually, he has this quack doctor who is giving him his regular injection of vitamins every morning, which was cocaine and heroin. Quite the vitamin concoction. And this is just propping up his Messiah complex, essentially. But he's constantly constantly being moved away from people actually telling him, no, you shouldn't do that. Out of touch with reality. It's kind of similar to what's happening to Saul in chapter 22. No one can put him in check. No one can question him. Saul's evil is in full bloom in this chapter. Let's, let's see this dialogue here, in, beginning in verse uh, 7. So Saul's sitting around this, this tamarisk tree, and he's, with, he's got his people around, he's got his spear in hand, he's this authoritative figure, and he says, Here now, people of Je- Benjamin, who will the son of Jesse, notice he doesn't call him David, son of Jesse, he's not using his name, it's probably a derogatory term, Give every one of you fields and vineyards. Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's a a backward statement of basically saying, David can't give you what I can give you if you obey me. I'll give you fields. I'll give you vineyards. I'll give you all this glory. It's sort of an echo when Satan is talking to Jesus. He presents with him all the kingdoms of the world. and He says, all these I will give you, Jesus, if you'll fall down and worship me. And then look at verse 8. He says, "Um, You've you've conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Talk about Jonathan making this covenant with David. uh, David. None of you is sorry for me. It's manipulation, isn't it? You should be sorry for me. I'm the victim here. David's the oppressor. Your allegiance is to me, not him. So he's playing this manipulation game. And then we get this guy, Doeg in verse nine. So Doeg, we saw in chapter 21. We don't hear much about him in 21. All we know is that he is at the temple, and he's overhearing the conversation between David and Ahimelech, the, the priest. When Ahimelech gives him the bread, gives him Goliath's sword. Well now Doeg is here in this perfect position to really tell Saul what, what David was doing. And he talks about Ahimelech giving him. What does he, he, he says in verse 10? He inquired of the Lord for him, so he got God's word from the priest, he gave him provisions, and he gave him a sword. Each of those things he's talking about was really designed to, to, to tell Saul, look, he is setting up essentially a coup. He essentially He's trying to gather an army with provisions, with a sword, and with, with uh, inquiring of the Lord. And so Ahimelech and the priests are summoned. And what is Ahimelech's defense? Look at verse 13. Saul says, Why have you conspired against me, Ahimelech, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread, a sword, and inquired of God for him, so that he's risen up against me to lie in wait as this day? This is Ahimelech's answer. Verse 14. King Saul, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time I inquired of God of him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to the house of my father. See, he makes good points, right? He's saying, You're, this is your son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard, Saul. This is what you've put him into these positions. He is leading how you've told him to. And I. he's inquired of God from, from me in the past. Ahimelech is, is innocent, right? of any wrongdoing. But as we can see, Saul is dead set on taking out Ahimelech, finding someone to blame. He says in verse 16, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. But what happens? He tells his servants to kill Ahimelech and they don't do it. They disobey the king. And if they don't do it, who does he turn to? Doeg his faithful Edomite. Not even an Israelite. Doeg kills Ahimelech, kills all eighty-five or eighty-five persons, priests, and not only that. Worst of all, he goes throughout the city and kills man, woman, child, infant, and uh, all the animals. He puts to the sword. You see, there's a there's a strong irony here, especially if you think back to chapter 15. Back in chapter 15, Saul does not command the people of God, to kill the enemy like he should. But here, in chapter 22, he's commanding the enemy, Doeg, an Edomite, to kill the people of God. He's doing the exact opposite of what he should be doing. He's, he's telling this Edomite, non-Israelite, to then kill the people of God. We can see here that God is, re, is removing his restraining grace. And so what we need to be reminded of is what we sang earlier in the service, that God's grace holds us fast. That we tend not to think about it, but God is actively at work in our lives, restraining us from our worst versions of ourselves. That without God's preserving, restraining, upholding grace, we're left to ourselves, and so is the world. In Romans 1, Paul talks about God judging people by giving grace them over to their sin. He said in, in chapter 1, verse 28 of Romans, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, God, what ought not to be done. That's the worst form of judgment in the end, right? It's being given up to your sinful ways. But for the believer, for those who are in Christ, we have Romans eight thirty through 31, where Paul says, If you're a believer, you've been predestined. And he also called the predestined. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is at work upholding us, calling us, and and will glorify us. And so in the midst of evil, in the midst of warfare, in the midst of atrocities and tragedies, we need to be reminded and praise God that he upholds the world by his grace. And we need to be praying for more and more of his restraining grace in the world. As we say in our Westminster Shorter Catechism that, that God subdues us to himself. He needs to subdue us and subdue the world to himself. The second idea is that, of how we can praise God is we can praise God for the mystery of his plan. That there is a plan here, whether you see it or not in chapter 22, that God's plan is working itself out. The mystery of his plan. One thing I think uh, evangelicals and reformed people in general, I think, need to get better at, and I, I myself, is the idea of mystery. We need to have a category of mystery in our doctrine as Christians. You need to be okay with mystery, with not knowing everything. See, we like in our you know, we like to have our systematic theologies. We like to know everything we can about God's word, right? We like to have it all orderly. But when things are mysterious, we don't like that very much. But it's very biblical. Mystery is a very biblical category. There's a psalm that gets to this heart of, of mysteries, Psalm 131, very short psalm. I love it. It says the psalmist says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That idea of a weaned child is is very important for us in our family right now. Shiloh, our youngest, is, is at that point where we're trying to get her to eat real food. Solid food because um, the milk isn't cutting it. She's she's up at three different times of the night sometimes because she's hungry and she is not happy. And so, what the psalm is saying is a weaned child is happy because their bellies are full. They've transitioned from milk to solid food. And that is the way we need to be with God when we are at peace with the mysteries that we can't understand. We need to be like weaned children. But that's not the way we are often. We want all the information. We want all the information. But God never promises that. He gives us information on a need-to-know basis. If if we needed to know it, He'd tell us. As we raise our children, often when we tell them things, they will not do what we say and say, Why? Why would you tell me that? I need to know. I need to understand your command. And we're like, No, we're your parents. The reason is we're, we're telling you to do this because we're your parents and we love you. you don't, it's a need-to-know basis. I don't have time to explain everything to a five-year-old. And Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. He told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they could have asked why, but they didn't. But why? Because he was the Lord. He was the creator. They were the creation. Just, out, just that mere fact, they should listen and obey him. He tells us things on a need-to-know basis. We need to be okay with mystery. And so, what is the plan here in chapter 22? Well, if you flip back to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we get back to this guy named Eli. So, chapter 2, verse 32 of 1 Samuel. If you'll remember, Eli was the priest in Shiloh. And he had these horrible sons who were also priests. And they were taking advantage of people. They were taking their food, they were eating it themselves that should have been offered to God, and uh, they were sleeping with women at the temple. They were, they were put to death by God in the end. And Eli himself was put to death by God, and there was this prophecy against him and his, and his descendants, and it was this, There shall not be an old man in your house forever, Eli. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house will die by the sword of men. That's what we're seeing happening in chapter 22. And so God is judging the wickedness of, of Eli and his, and his sons all the way up to chapter 22 through this evil scene with Doak killing the priests. So this is a part of God's plan ultimately. But we need to remember that God will judge all evil. Right, The evil of Eli, but also the evil of Doeg and Saul. The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And Behold, he was no more. Though I saw him, he could not be found. Well, that, that's a promise that God is going to judge every act of evil. We see that uh, different scenes throughout the scriptures where God does use evil for his good plans. If you remember the story of Joseph, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes a powerful person down in Egypt. There's this huge famine and everyone has to come to Egypt for food and he is the second in command in Egypt. God put him there through these acts of evil and what he says to his brothers is, you brothers meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about, that many people would be kept alive as they are today. Their evil acts were actually meant by God to bring about good. We see this most clearly in, in the life of Jesus. Paul, Peter, preaching in Acts 2, says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see what Peter's saying? This was all a part of God's plan even these evil acts to crucify Christ. And so we hit up against this idea again of mystery that God is sovereign and he plans all of people's actions, but people are responsible for their actions. They're both true. And even the evil that tries to stamp out God's people is a part of God's plan to save his people. See, now we're getting into deep waters here, aren't we? Del Ralph Davis says, even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. So one can vigorously attack God and all the time simply be executing God's will. You can't get around God, you can't outmaneuver God. So, how should we think about this as believers? Well, I want to say one thing of caution to not mishear me, that just because God's plan in total is good, it doesn't mean we should, should not be appalled and lament and hate the evil and wickedness within God's plan. So don't mishear what I'm saying to you. You don't have to like everything that happens to you because it's within God's sovereign plan. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to be a stoic and refuse to grieve when God brings death and sickness and tragedy into your life. In fact, you shouldn't. It would be wrong if you just said, oh, I'm A-OK with everything that happens in my life. That's not how God's sovereignty is supposed to affect us. We're called in Romans 12 to abhor what's evil. We're called in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer to what? Ask God to deliver us from evil. In James 4, we're called to resist the devil, to fight against it. Del Ralph Davis continues, he says, If we know that as men oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill his word, it doesn't take away sorrow or grief or suffering, but it gives secret certainty of victory. That's the point. We have secret certainty of victory. You know, many people who uh, reject Christianity or reject God often what they, the, one of the reasons they will reject God and in, in Christianity is because of the argument that, that evil is in the world. And how could a good God allow evil, bad things to happen? Many people have rejected the faith over that very issue. I was watching an inter- interview be- between a pastor, a theologian, and this atheist talking about that, and, and, and the theologian responded like this. He's, he said, first of all, if you believe the Gospels, and you believe what Jesus said about himself, and assume, that, say, Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God, come in the flesh, then a part of your answer about why God allows bad things to happen can't be that he doesn't care, or that he's distant. Because Jesus came. He endured suffering. He endured evil. He was in our flesh. He knows what it's like. So you, that answer can exist. You can't say God's distant or he doesn't care. Secondly, just because you can't think of a good reason why God would allow evil in the world doesn't mean there doesn't exist one, right? We have to remember God is beyond us. He is infinite, and we're finite. Just because we can't think of a good reason doesn't mean it's not out there. And lastly, he said this to the atheist, your actual moral outrage proves that there's a higher law giver. If there's a higher law, essentially, that you are outraged at the evil done in the world, evil like the Holocaust, if that angers you, that does not align with a materialistic Darwinian view of the world, right? Because that is just a dog-eat-dog world, right? That's just evolution working itself out, one nation killing another. But if you're outraged at that, as you should be, doesn't that prove that there is a higher law at work here. And if there's a higher law, there's a higher lawgiver. And so we have to remind ourselves of those truths that God's plan is bigger than us. And what we see happening in the world, He is actively involved with. Last truth this morning we can praise God for His protection of the remnant, for His protection of the remnant. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. You see, this is, the, in that prophecy to Eli, this is the one man that would, would escape. And he does escape, and he goes to David, and he tells David all that Saul has done. You see, this is, fits right in line with the story of the Bible, that God always preserves a remnant that he always preserves his people. Think about after Cain kills Abel, you have Seth, who is the godly line that leads to the Messiah. You have Noah, the remnant and his family, surviving the flood. You've got Abraham's sons. You've got Isaac. You've got Jacob. You've got Joseph allowing the remnant to stay alive. You have Moses. Dale Ralph Davis says, Abiathar is another exhibit of evidence for a pattern Yahweh seems to follow. Are Israel's infant sons doomed to die by Pharaoh's decree? God will preserve one of them, one who will make quite a difference. Does it seem that Baal has conquered and is lord and master over Israel? Yahweh will sustain 7,000 whose knees never bend to him. Does Athaliah's murder of the royal seed threaten to falsify the Davidic covenant? One of God's dear ladies will see that baby Joash does not fall to Athaliah's dripping sword. Will a new pharaoh named Herod cut down Bethlehem's toddlers and his fury? One of those toddlers will escape. Herod and all of God's enemies had no idea that it was so difficult to reverse redemption once God had ordained it. You see, once God ordained redemption, it will happen. He often does it through a remnant. And so the truth here is that God will always preserve his people. He'll always preserve his church. Now, I know you guys are good Presbyterians and you, re- you religiously read your Westminster Confession of Faith, as Bill rolls his eyes. <laughs> so, so I want you to go home, if you don't have this memorized, chapter 25, to go home and read chapter 25 of Westminster Confession of Faith, like a good Presbyterian. It's a beautiful statement about the church. The church has been sometimes more and sometimes less visible, right? It shrinks sometimes and it grows sometimes. And particular churches are more or less pure. As the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinance ministers, public worship performed more or less purely in them, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture of error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Here's the key. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There will always be a church on earth, no matter how small it gets. Jesus says, I am building my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery Can never wipe out all of God's servants. He will sustain his church. As we end, I want to conclude by looking at the words of David to Abiathar. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. But here's the key stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. It's very clear in this passage that David is the anointed. Is the, is the, he is the anointed one. But he's Christ in this episode. And who's Antichrist? Saul. And I don't mean capital A Antichrist. I mean little a. Antichrist. In 1 John, we read that there will be many antichrists to come. There is a spirit of an antichrist. John, 1 John 2, he writes, Now, now many antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. In 1 John 4, he says, This is the spirit of the antichrist, that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Saul's not just not confessing the anointed, he is trying to kill the anointed. And so he is resembling the Antichrist here. So, so how, does, how does David resemble Christ? Well, look at his words and, and see how they echo the words of our Savior. He says, stay with me. Stay with me. Doesn't that remind you of what Jesus says? I'm the true vine. You're the branches. Every branch in me, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Abide in me, and I in you. You see, if we attach ourselves to to the anointed one, we'll be safe and we'll bear fruit. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's gathering this remnant to himself, this Abiathar. He also says to Abiathar, do not be afraid. Why? Why, as as Christians, why should we ultimately not be afraid? Well, ultimately, isn't it because even if, if our body is killed, our soul is indestructible. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear not, therefore, you are more value, he said, than, than many sparrows. You can't kill the soul, but they can kill the body. Your soul is indestructible. Do not be afraid, he says. Look what else did David says. He says, he who seeks my life seeks your life. There is this unity between the anointed and his people. There's this union we have with Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. There is this link between Jesus and his people. There's this union with Christ that we will also experience the life Jesus had, even his suffering and that he gave up his life to save ours. But I want to hang out and finish on this last verse, that with me, David says, you shall be in safekeeping. You'll be safe if you link yourself to the anointed one. Bob Thune, uh, an elder in the PCA, he writes, the church's future is certain. Amid much of the hand-wringing and prognostication, we must start with one absolutely certain truth, the church has a future. Our Lord Jesus said, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus promised he'll build his church. The the whole church will thrive. Anytime you feel disheartened about what's happening in America, what's happening in the West, what's happening with secularism in our world, Look at what God is doing and what he's promised. Look at other parts of the world, the global south, for instance, and be encouraged. Jesus is building his worldwide church just as he said. So my question for you is, can you praise God in the midst of evil this morning? We can, as we look to his grace, as we look to his plan and his protection, that he will protect us and be with us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have a God who is in control, a God who loves us, and a Christ who came down to save us. You did not leave us to ourselves, Jesus, but you came and you put on our flesh and you did everything that was required to save us from ourselves. So, Father, encourage us this morning that even as we see evil continue in this world, we have hope, a sure hope, that you will bring it all to justice and you'll come soon. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.